This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It'll be exciting when that first female wearing a spacesuit steps off of a human lander onto the moon. It'll be symbolic. And then after that, I hope it gets routine. I hope that a lot of young girls look up at that and say, wow, that's, that's something I can do too. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. And you are in the right place if you're after inspiration, uplifting stories and practical advice from innovative and pioneering women around the globe. So if you're looking to get ahead or trying to figure out what's next for you, stay tuned. And if you're enjoying our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out when an episode lands. Absolutely, you have to be in the know. Now to this week's episode. We're a little bit excited about our guest this week. That's an understatement. Yeah, okay. We're a big bit excited. And that's because our guest not only has the best job title we've ever heard, but also because she's working on technology that will undoubtedly have an incredible impact on our lives in the future. Now, the fantastic and ever so on topic guest we're talking about is Trudy Cortez, who is the chief of the Human Exploration and Space Operations Division at, get this, at NASA. What an amazing job. Absolutely. An aeronautical engineer by profession, Trudy has spent around 30 years working for NASA, focusing on helping the space agency develop many super sophisticated technologies to explore our galaxy. Today, Trudy leads a team of around 200 people working on a range of technologies, including advanced communication, propulsion, and the crew module, to name a few. It's such incredible work. In this episode, you'll learn the really unusual reason why Trudy decided at high school she wanted to work for NASA, how Trudy has found her authentic and humorous self and why it matters, what she's learned about having difficult conversations and how she feels about the project she's working on to send the first female astronaut to the moon in 2024. So sit back, buckle up and enjoy these fascinating stories and insights from Trudy Cortez. Trudy Cortes, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Well, thank you so much for having me today. I'm thrilled to talk to you. Well, you know, it's it's such a privilege for us. We're sitting here a few days before the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and we're talking to somebody who works at NASA, so that's a bit exciting for us. It is indeed. <laughs> well, I feel the excitement in your voice. That's exciting for me. <laughs> yeah, it must be seriously exciting for you, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Trudy. 
I'm not sure if you know this, but when we first start our podcast interviews, we like to help our listeners really ground, you know, what you do and who you are. But we're going to ask you to tell them this in a very succinct way. So imagine you're at a dinner party and you meet somebody that you don't know. And you say you're from NASA, which obviously will automatically start an interesting conversation. But how would you describe what you actually do today? Sure. I lead a team of people to produce technologies and capabilities for the agency and then really by extrapolation for the country, for the United States, that will help uh, future exploration needs. So working with a group of people, very brilliant, talented people, on very tough technological challenges that we need to solve if we're going to go both back to the moon, establish ourselves there, and then beyond that to Mars and beyond. So that's that's what I do in, in a few words. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of hard to imagine the kind of technology that you'd need to get to the moon. But again, we are going to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But before we do, what I'd love to do is actually really understand a little bit more about you. And, you know, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? So I grew up in the state of Michigan outside of Detroit, which at the time that I grew up there was a big automotive, still is automotive industry in a suburb of that called Farmington Hills, Michigan. My parents were Depression-era children. My dad was, his longtime career was at the Ford Motor Company as an engineer himself. And so grew up in this big Polish family. I was really happy childhood, youngest of five. So I'm sure my siblings would, my older siblings would tell you I was a brat from time to time, or maybe a lot of the times. Being the oldest child, I can say that I'm sure that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure they would tell you stories. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And Trudy, I don't know how old you are, and I suspect you may not have been around, but given this is the week of the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, were you around then? And do you remember that? I was a few months shy from being born. I was turned 50. So I missed it. Just I just barely missed it. But certainly, I started my career at the at the Johnson Space Center right out of college. In fact, that was my first location with NASA was in Houston, Texas. And I certainly worked at that time with the engineers and technicians who helped us get to the moon. And I would hear stories from them, incredible stories from them about just the hard work and dedication that it required to do that. And working 12-hour shifts and not being able to go home because there just was very little time. They would sleep in their cars and get up and do that all over again the next day. I guess for those older colleagues, it must have been a truly career-defining, iconic, you know, once-in-a-career moment for them. Absolutely. They would, they'd loved to reminisce about it. And they would talk about how it was just a different time in getting things done and getting things done quickly. Even though it was hard work at the time, I think probably to a person that I talked to, they were just incredibly proud to have been a part of that effort, which if you think about it, really, it wasn't just an effort for the United States. It was an effort for the world. I mean, when Neil Armstrong stepped out of that lunar module, he didn't say, this is one small step for man, one giant leap for the United States. He said, this is one giant leap for mankind. And I think people understand and feel that, that this was a world achievement. We just happened to be leading it, but it's a world achievement. 
Yeah. And I'd love to take you back, you know, because there you are, you're saying you started out of uni at the Johnson Centre, but what was it that made you decide to study aeronautical engineering? What had inspired you as a kid? What did you think you wanted to be? You know, I didn't really know, like most young kids, it's hard to know. I was really good in, in math and sciences, especially math. I just excelled at it. I loved it. Math made perfect sense to me. There was a right and a wrong answer to that. It was not a lot of gray areas or fuzz on that. Even the more challenging, difficult classes, I just thrived in that. And my dad really always encouraged me to look at engineering as a degree, first of all. And my dad, he was an engineer by trade, but not by education. And I think he never told me this, but I got the sense that he always wished he had a formal engineering degree because he would always say to me, hey, Trudy, go get an engineering degree. No one can take that away from you. And I thought, isn't that interesting the way he puts that to me? And I didn't really think about that phrase until later in life. And I think what he was trying to say to me was, hey, that's a valuable degree and it's diverse. You can do a lot of different things with that as long as you have the technical credentials to get you to the next place. You go be a patent lawyer, you go into business, you could do many different things with it. But besides that, I was a junior in high school and I just happened to be in my physics class and I could tell you the details of it. I was in physics class with, with Mr. Krupp. I adored Mr. Krupka. He was a funny guy and he was a great teacher. And it was January of 1986 and a space shuttle Challenger had just exploded and they rolled the audiovisual cart with the TV on it into our physics classroom. And we stopped everything we were doing the lesson that day and we watched coverage of it. And I remember seeing spokespeople from NASA come on and describe what had happened. And I can't pinpoint exactly what inspired me from that but it made me want to work for that organization. And I just thought, wow, that takes a lot of resilient, it's risky, and it was impressive to me to see that. And how fascinating that a truly tragic event still was able to capture your imagination and aspiration based on the organization's sort of immediate responses. Absolutely. It really did. And like I said, I, I remember watching the footage, but I still can't even pinpoint to this day what exactly specifically it was about that that made me think, wow, that's just something I want to go pursue. But it certainly did. So we'll fast forward and you've now worked in a number of different roles at the space agency and your current job title is pretty awesome. It, it possibly is the best job title we've ever heard. And, and that is Chief Human Exploration and Space Operations. Can you describe in layman's terms sort of some of the examples of things that you actually do in that job? I can. Sometimes titles just make me laugh a little bit. Everyone seems to have a fancy title sometimes. So in my current job, I lead a division of just under 200 people. We're responsible for developing a couple of things for the next journey that we'll take to the moon and, and beyond. So the capsule that we're developing, which again could be compared to Apollo days, is the new crew module at seats four, and then the service module, which is attached to that and it provides all of the supplies that the crew needs. So the electrical power, the propulsion, the guidance and navigation system, the thermal control, things like that, the life support systems that they need to sustain themselves on orbit and on their journey. And so we are getting that vehicle, that first vehicle 
that's been put together and it's being shipped up here to Northeast Ohio in the next couple of months. And we're going to put that through the paces of testing that it needs to go through prior to launching it into space. And so the ground testing that we're doing here is really critically important to that. We also do some work for the launch vehicle that we're developing, the space launch system. And that's the universal stage adapter, which mates the launch vehicle to the upper part of the vehicle. We do some advanced communications work in my area, things like optical communications and cognitive communications, which is a really smart communication system that is exactly how it sounds. It almost thinks on its own for you. And it's really getting away from the more traditional like radio frequency that we use. And then we do a lot of experiments with the international that go aboard the International Space Station in flame attenuation, fire safety for the crew, things like that. So it's a really broad range of things that my division does. The work here we've done has traditionally been in the power and propulsion areas. Communications is another one of our core competencies, and then materials and structures. So anytime those things are involved, they tap us here to help out and be part of the team that helps them develop those things. Wow. It sounds incredibly exciting. And and I think when you listen to what you're doing, it's only then that you start to understand that the work that NASA is doing actually impacts everybody else, industry and and the future and what we're doing there. What is the connections for you between what's happening, you know, as you go to the moon and what's going to happen in the world? So NASA has this thing that they've been actually really, really good about communicating over the history of the agency, and they're called spinoffs. And spinoffs are things that we've developed for space exploration, but they have terrestrial applications. And if you even look at the the items from Apollo that translated into things that are for common everyday use, it's incredible. Things in the food safety industry, because they had to look at that for how they could package things for the crew and send it up. Hearing aids have NASA technology in them. My favorite one, I think, is insulation. They had to develop a kind of multi-layer insulation back in the Apollo days in these blankets that could go in the spacesuit and cover the vehicle and things like that. And they're now commonplace in camping gear and clothing and things like that. And so they were adapted for other uses. And there's such a long list of those things, things for the health industry. There's, you know, the liquid cooling garment that the astronauts wear underneath their spacesuits have uh, medical applications that developed out of that. So there's all these, you know, spinoffs that happened. And I'm really excited because there's so many new technologies that are needed for the next phase of what we're doing by trying to go to the moon in 2024 that and an incredible amount of technologies that that we need to develop for that and then beyond. I'm excited to see what comes out of that. There'll be a whole whole host of other things that we could be sitting here talking about in five to 10 years that are new that came out of what we have to develop for space exploration. Oh, it's so fascinating, Trudy. And really all the things you're working on, it really makes me think about just how much you know, you have been involved with innovating and creating new technologies and capabilities. And this podcast, as you know, it's all about innovative and pioneering women. I imagine collaboration has cropped up as a theme. You know, I imagine you must have some really interesting insights or advice about innovation and collaboration. And if you had to give a tip to someone, perhaps they're in the private sector, who, you know, is trying to innovate more, you know, what would be one or two things that you would share with them? 
Well, and it, it depends on if, what kind of innovation you're talking about, but there are all kinds of technology types of innovations, but I don't think that's what you're getting at with that question. Probably more cultural, isn't it? Cultural, yes, very cultural. And here's what I would say is that you can be innovative in how you behave and how you conduct yourself and be true to yourself and you're in, you know, you can innovate in ways that allows you to be true to yourself. And can I give you an example and an anecdote that? Yeah. Okay. So this might seem silly a little bit, but I'm going to tell you it anyway. A couple of years ago, I had to go present the status of my program to the highest levels of NASA. So, and they get together, you know, every month to do this review and I had to go every six months. And it's a nerve wracking thing. You are presenting to the highest levels of the agency, you know, the administrator and directors of and high level folks. And so you walk into a room of dark suits and it is very serious. And I wasn't very experienced doing this, but I walked in and I thought, you know what, I'm going to open with a joke and we're going to see what happens. I sat down, I was sitting down at a table to give my presentation and the mic was on and I started with the joke. And this was not the norm for that meeting. And it went over really, really well. People liked it. People laughed. And a few weeks after that, the chief of staff for my organization came to see me and he said, you're not going to believe it. He said, I was in a meeting where they were talking with a group of folks who had done a developmental opportunity by shadowing high-level leaders And they went around and asked each one of them, what stuck out the most for you during your shadowing experience? And this gentleman stood up and he said, you know, there was this, I'm tall. If you don't, it's hard to see, you know, you don't know on the podcast, but I'm tall. (laughs) He said, this tall blonde woman from space technology told a joke at the agency monthly review. And boy, that was interesting to see her do that. It was inspiring. And he apparently went on and on about this. And I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? And the lesson to me was keep doing that. Keep being who you are. To me, that was innovative because it's just not something that you do at high-level meetings at NASA. And six months after that, I had to present again. And just coincidentally, there were some personal things happening. I couldn't be there in person. My parents had passed away when we were we were closing on their house the next day. And so I had to present remotely and I wasn't in the room. And there was someone else chairing the meeting who I wasn't familiar with. And so I had a joke prepared, ready to go, because I thought maybe they're used to this by now, or maybe they're they're expecting that. And I didn't go with my gut instinct and it made me a little nervous. So I didn't tell the joke. And after I was done presenting, this very nice woman who was chairing the meeting said to me, well, gee, Trudy, that was a fine presentation, but we really were all hoping you would start with your joke. (laughs) And, And so I thought, wow, when I don't go with my gut instinct and I don't, you know, do what comes naturally to me, it often backfires. And so that was a good lesson for me to just go through that. So it sounds silly for me to tell you the most innovative things that thing I've done in my career is tell a joke to high level NASA people. But there were a lot of lessons there for me and a a lot of good nuggets that came out of that for me that I'm carrying forward. And it takes courage, doesn't it, to be yourself? Very much so, to be your authentic self. I have gradually learned that over my 50 years, almost 50 years, that it does. But I'll tell you, it's more, if you can get there, it's much more comfortable. It's a nice place to be when you can do that and do it in a way that 
it resonates with people. And I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned about how that is important for me in the leadership that I try to portray and how I conduct myself is finding a way to relate to people. And I think humor is a great way to bridge that. There's commonalities there. It's a great common denominator for people. And you also have to be able to know, you have to read a situation, you have to read a room, and you have to know when a situation requires gravity and when it requires levity. And there's times for both. But I think, to be quite honest with you, it's a stressful world we live in. People are running at very fast clips. And I think that people want that. They need some levity sometimes on a daily basis because we're all trying to get through this together, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And it brings us back to our humanity, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you think about NASA, I personally, having watched lots of documentaries recently, think about lots of gray and black suited men who actually look pretty similar. What's it been like for you as a woman, particularly in a technology role? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I mean, there have definitely been struggles. There have been definitely some challenges. I think any woman at any level in a traditionally, historically male-dominated organization faces them. And I often am the only woman in the room in a meeting or one of just a few. But I will say there are a lot of women in the area that I'm in, program and project management, a lot of engineers. The difficult part for me is when I look up, I still necessarily don't see across the board people in the positions that I'm looking to in the future. And the quote I love is, if you can see her, you can be her. And sometimes I look up and I can't see her. And that's important for, I'll just say this for for males too. If you can see him, you can be him. There are just a lot of hymns already. And we need some of those hers now to look up and say, okay, there's a NASA administrator who's been a female and that's not true yet. So it's challenging for sure. I have just found that using my voice to raise awareness for those challenges that when they come up, difficult things is always the best way to go. Because I really believe that sometimes things happen that you might not like, but if you bring it up in a respectful way, oftentimes the issue is there was just a serious lack of awareness of how things were perceived. You know, something might've happened to you thought, oh, that was not okay. And you address it with the person And usually it's a lack of awareness that led to that situation. And I think the more of us that raise our voices about those types of things, the more that that is going to shift. If we stay silent about it, it will not shift. I think that is so important. And yet it is quite hard to do and takes courage. What's your practical advice? Do you do it in the moment, sort of in the same meeting if you've seen something? Or do you then find a moment shortly after where you can get that person quietly one-on-one Yeah, I think really in especially a sensitive situation, it's really just best to wait until, to do it in a timely way, but wait till a one-on-one situation. This goes back to great bosses I had early on in my career that you praise in public, but then you talk through those types of things in private. And I also think that it can diffuse the situation a little bit. If you bring it up in public, it just could be really embarrassing for the individual. I just don't think that's really the right route to go. And I think it means more to have a one-on-one conversation about that. And I've had to do that from time to time. And it's usually very effective. And really, I find that if I'm my authentic self and saying, hey, this is what happened and, and this is how it made me feel, it gets that person's attention. And then it starts a very real genuine conversation. 
and then they become more sensitive to whatever that that issue might have been. And have you always been good at having these kinds of conversations, Trudy, or is this something that you've had to learn and practice? I've been terrible at this until recently, and recently, and maybe I still even struggle with it. Maybe there's something about turning 50 that you start to go, hmm, you know, I have things to say and I'm going to say them. But no, my younger self was not at all good at that. I suppressed a lot. There were times I didn't speak up. It was, to me, it was very conformist. I don't know, go along to get along kind of thing. You know, you're in the midst of your career and you're you're wanting to do well and grow and thrive. And that's it's an intimidating situation sometimes to be in to have to voice some of those things. And so no, I, I have not been very good at it. In fact, I'm not particularly proud of some of the techniques I would use in the past, like talk to other people about it and think I might get back to that person. That's not effective, you know, and I don't do that anymore. That's not right. It's not respectful to the individual and it's not effective. And so I've, I've had to learn that really hard learning over a long period of time to get comfortable with that. I think that's fantastic advice, you know, to work on it, but to have the courage when you have experienced some kind of, you know, in this instance, we're talking about gender bias to find a way to sort of talk about it, how it impacted you. What other advice would you have and give to young women interested in careers in STEM or space in particular? Sure. Well, first of all, I would definitely say if you have that desire that ability and it really is compelling to you to pursue those types of things you absolutely can do it first of all but the other advice i might give is just don't ignore your gut instinct when you're making decisions about your education your career where you want to go it's such a valuable thing and what what's funny to me is i'm sitting here talking to you about nasa and there's technology and there's hard data that goes along with that and gut instinct doesn't have hard data with it. It is a feeling. It's a, it's an emotion. It's like your inner wisdom. That's another thing I've had to learn over the course of time is that my gut instinct has, I would say, never failed me. It really hasn't. It's just been that tool that I've used to steer me. And when I have gone against my gut instinct, and I'll tell you, there have been a couple times that I have, boy, did I regret it. And I knew it too. I knew it. And really the person that you need to listen to in those types of things, career decisions, personal decisions, is yourself. You need to listen to yourself. You can go and talk to a bunch of different people, get advice, but in the end, it's you that has to be happy with your decision and comfortable with where things are headed Trudy, I'd love to explore just how you tap into your gut instinct because it's a pretty noisy world, isn't it? You know, we've got our phones, social media, sometimes a crazy inner critic. How do you actually tap into your gut instinct and know, oh, yeah, that is my gut instinct. It's not some other kind of piece of information I'm hearing inside. Yeah. Well, so I think that gut instinct for me anyway is something that – happens really actually fairly quickly. It's intuition. And intuition, it doesn't take a long time, right? I mean, it, it's just something that you you feel, you, you know within you. I think you can't let fear come into the picture. It really will cloud your inner wisdom. And so, so fear, I think, is really detrimental to gut instinct. And I find something interesting happens when you're looking for kind of 
you know, signs or something like that about, are you right? You know, in, in, in what you're thinking. Yeah. Decision. Somehow the universe, and I know that sounds a little corny, but somehow so the universe seems to send you signals and maybe it's just what you're paying attention to. But sometimes when I think, yes, this is the decision for me, sometimes I see little nuggets, maybe on social media or maybe things people say that go, yep, that just supported exactly the decision, you know, that I, I think that I need to make here. And so all of a sudden, usually I see these these signs. And and again, maybe it's you're looking for it. And how do you calm fear down? Mm. That's tough. That's a tough question. I don't know. I have some go-to people in my life that really help me talk through things when I need to. I'm a talker, like I told you before. Uh, My husband's great about being a sounding board for me. He often will say, sure, you're afraid of this, but think about the other thing. And I think the other way is you look historically at what has happened to you. Because for me, I think fear is often just unfounded. It's things that never materialize. And often I have to remind myself of that, that often you have fears about things that just really practically will never will never come to be. And it's tough. It is tough though, to overcome fear. I think when I have fears, sometimes I keep them to myself because I don't want people to know I'm afraid of things. I'm supposed to be this strong mom, leader, wife, you know, all these roles that I play. And it's hard to show that vulnerable side but sometimes expressing it just first of all it just feels so good to say those things like hey this this really worries me or this is really bothering me i'm afraid that x might happen i think it's cathartic to talk about it and get it out and then often it just gets me to a point where maybe i can't disregard it but i can minimize it when it happens yeah absolutely um that sort of thing about labeling fear it's been proven that it actually does calm down the the emotional center of the brain so yeah it's brilliant advice and it also yeah. helps you keep things in perspective because by getting it out of your head you're able to think about it more rationally and you often realize that you sort of inflate it and it gets a bit more emotionally laden so yeah I'd love us to look forward to the future now briefly before we wrap up. And, you know, one exciting and very topical project and mission coming that you've already sort of alluded to, I think, briefly is the Artemis mission, which will send, uh, I think, astronauts to the moon in 2024, including a female astronaut. How does that make you feel? Oh, great. It's first of all, exciting to have uh, just was announced a few months ago, a set goal, common goal, a mission, a very specific mission that we're all working towards. It's a new, exciting time for the agency. It kind of plays into everything. We've been working on a lot of these things for many years, and it will culminate in some new technologies we're using, such as solar electric propulsion on a gateway, which is basically a lunar outpost that will be able to maneuver a lander to the point where it can deposit folks onto the lunar South Pole. And that's, you know, the goal is that for the 2024 timeframe. And we're going to have test flights before that starting in late 2020 and then going on for the next couple of years until we get to the point where we can deliver, you know, humans back to the surface. And so absolutely, I, I love the name that they came up with Artemis, the twin sister of Apollo. It's just really great symbolism. And she's the goddess of the moon and, and of the hunt. And that just makes a complete perfect sense. And I love the symbolism there of that. 
And so it'll be an exciting time. We have a lot to pull off between now and then. We have a lot of teamwork, a lot of collaboration. We are not going to do this alone. We got a lot of organizations to pull together together to get this done. And that's exciting for me too. I love the collaboration piece. We're going to have to have everyone working together to do this. It'll be exciting when that first female wearing a spacesuit steps off of a human lander onto the moon. It'll be symbolic. And then after that, I hope it gets routine. I hope that a lot of young girls look up at that and say, wow, that's that's something I can do too. What about for you, Trudy? What is exciting you for your future? So I have a couple of career goals in mind for myself that I'm, I'm looking at pursuing in the next short period of time. I just am putting my thoughts around leadership and speaking as a woman in STEM. And so I'm getting some personal things going around that with with speaking and consulting and career mentoring, which has really become just a favorite area of mine to work on. So I have that that's launching very soon. Other than that, just remaining as I have for the past many you know, years, couple of decades on this team that's going to accomplish these great things for the world, you know, for the nation and for the world. Absolutely. So I, I look forward to some of those things. Sounds great. Well, Trudy, your work and your insights and wisdom have been truly inspiring to be able to have the chance to talk to you today and to share this with our listeners. Thank you so much for your time. I hope it was. And thank you so much. I'm thrilled to talk to you today. And I've been thrilled about this since you extended the invitation to me. So thank you so much. It's our pleasure. And if our listeners wanted to find out more about you or your work or the Artemis mission to Mars in 2024, are there sort of places you would recommend they go? Absolutely. For NASA and its missions, Artemis and others, www.nasa.gov G-O-V, will work. And then personally for me, www.trudycordis.com. And you can put that on your site if you'd like. That has more information about me and I'm reachable by LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram as well. So a couple different ways people can connect up. Fantastic, Trudy. Well, we will absolutely put those links on our show notes page. And again, it's been such a joy to speak with you and really inspiring and exciting too. And here's to 2024 and beyond. Thank you, Trudy. Absolutely. Cheers to 2024. And thank you, Greta. Thank you, Claire. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks. think we should admit to our listeners, Gret, that there were times during that interview where we just looked at each other in absolute awe and excitement, particularly when Trudy was talking about the kind of technology that she and her team were developing. Absolutely. Well, you know, I've been a huge Apollo 11 and the moon landing fan for ages. And so the fact that Trudy is working at NASA on space projects is mind-blowing and when she was talking about the new Artemis project and how that project will send a female astronaut to the moon in 2024 well that's just so exciting. Oh it sure is and you know 2024 is just around the corner isn't it? I reckon Trudy's gonna have a pretty busy couple of years ahead. (laughs) Yeah she's definitely is I'd say. You know what stood out for me in this interview was just how relatable Trudy is. Absolutely you know she was very honest about the challenges she's faced and it's a very male-dominated organization of course and it's so refreshing to have someone that's senior in such a powerful organization who is that authentic and open. Yeah, and related to that, I loved that humour story she told us. Oh, that was the best. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. 
Tune in for our next episode with another absolutely incredible human being, the internet pioneer and member of the House of Lords, Martha Lane Fox. Yep, now there's an incredible story. See you then. Ciao for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.